uh, to introduce our keynote speakers, and I'm delighted to be here, to introduce you to two gentlemen whose journalistic partnership has been described as a news-breaking juggernaut, and that's simply because they break so many big stories. In TV land, we'd call it first on seven and first on nine, all at the same time. <laughs> now, <laughs> between them, this uh, investigative duo from The Age has won a bazillion awards. I'm in commercial television, so hyperbole is so fine. But I can detail some of it for you. Those awards include four Walkleys for investigative journalism in 2011, for business journalism in 2012, and for print news reporting in 2013. And they were also part of a team that won an award for continuous coverage that year. Whistleblowers come to them with stories. They've had to fight to make sure those stories are told and those sources protected. And uh, having just come back from Turkey, I know I can tell you if they were there, uh, in local media reporting on the current government, there's a pretty good chance that they'd be in jail right now, given the forensic detail with which they approach their stories. They are free and they are fearless. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Baker and Nick McKenzie to deliver the 2014 Press Freedom Address. Firstly, as Fairfax reporters, it wouldn't be right to start the speech without paying our respects to the traditional owner of the land, Gina Reinhart. <laughs> or should that be Eddie Obeid? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and can I say what a great privilege it is for us to give this speech. Before we move into more serious territory, I thought I'd start by telling you all how I first met Richard. One day in 2005, while I was working at the ABC, I was called by a woman who introduced herself as age editor Andrew Jaspin's secretary. She said that Jasper wanted to meet me in a discreet city cafe the next day and gave me the impression he wanted to talk about a job. I was pumped. I wasn't far out of my job as a cadet at the ABC and the possibility of leaving Auntie and working at The Age with its long and proud history of investigative reporting was exciting. I was also nervous. You see, I'd been published in The Age once before and I was hoping Jasper hadn't searched my name in the clippings. My first time in print of the age went something like this. As a cadet doing my first ever TV news story, I interviewed a farming family dealing with the drought. As I sat in the back seat of our car, as the sound man drove out of their property, I heard the sort of sound you would imagine you would hear when a large TV news crew car runs over a small and aging family dog, <laughs> whose name is Ernie, or whose name was Ernie. Anyhow, the soundie behind the wheel of the car at the time of this farmyard tragedy thought it would be a great laugh to leak the accident to the age's gossip column with one minor tweak. He changed the name of the driver from himself to me. So if Andrew Jasmine had popped my name into the database, he would have read a headline that stated, and I quote, aspiring ABC cadet kills family's dog in frontline moment. Luckily, Jaspin didn't search my name prior to the meeting. In fact, he appeared to have done not too much homework at all. When he arrived at the cafe, he began by asking me what my name was <laughs> and why I wanted to meet him. <laughs> when I replied I thought this was about a possible job of the age, he asked me why I wanted to leave the Herald Sun. <laughs> when I told him I didn't think too much of Rupert, his face lit up with excitement. And I knew then and there 
he was keen to have me on board at Fairfax. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I was a little unconvinced at the prospect of leaving the ABC to join The Age, and sensing my weariness, Jasmine told me there was someone who could convince me. The very next day, I went back to the same cafe, and Richard Baker walked in, confident and strutting, hand out and said, you must be Rick from Channel 10. Yes, I had the, uh, the great task of convincing Nick to come on board at that time. Uh, his first day didn't start too well as I was showing him around the, the tour of the ages uh, brown brick previous building in Melbourne, the, the Spencer Street Soviet. Uh, the first staff member we bumped into on that tour was the ages famously talented but incredibly underdressed film reviewer Jim Shembury. A former editor once asked to the brilliant and feisty Jim that if he was going to insist on wearing his tracky pants in the age office, could he at least make sure he didn't have holes in the arse? Or at least pop on a pair of undies. It's, very, it's, it's true, if any of you have seen Jim around the place. Like any good journalist, Jim refused, and he was using his wear of, using, uh, wearing his usual finery when he decided to give Nick a welcoming hug. <laughs> Nick was on board. It didn't take long for Nick and I to click. We were both hungry, passionate, idealistic, and supporters of the Geelong Footy Club. I remember telling Nick, that there was nothing better than holding a powerful bully to account or giving someone, that, someone without a voice a platform to speak. And Nick agreed, agreed wholeheartedly. As Kate McClymont pointed out from this podium last year, investigative journalism is not a popula popularity contest. It's about gathering facts, verifying them to the best of your ability. It's about being as fair as you are relentless, giving the subjects of stories a chance and time to reply. Although with the early and earlier deadlines, I think we have to ask them for a question on Monday and get it on, uh, you know, about by Monday lunchtime. But uh, that's the way it is these days. So we've just got to be fair and move with the times. But it's about informing the public about what's going on on the inside of a company, a political party, a sporting club or a hospital. And thankfully, practising the craft here in Australia is far safer than in many other parts of the world. And with that in mind, we'd really like to express our support for Peter Grest, Alan Morrison and their colleagues who are locked up or face serious jail time for simply doing their jobs. Everyone in the Australian media community is behind these guys and we call on our government to do everything within its power to press those governments that are locking them up or facing them to show, uh, subjecting them to show trials. We'd also like to remember all the journalists that were killed in the line of duty over the last year. I don't think many of us have the courage to practice true investigative journalism in a lot of the places that we saw highlighted before or places like Mexico where your head can end up next to your laptop on a road as a message to others. So what is confronting Peter, Alan and all the other journalists around the globe is a reminder why press freedom is worth fighting for. Even though the risks aren't as great here, there is still one hell of a fight going on in Australia to preserve our free press. We are increasingly seeing the rich and powerful resort to litigation to pursue journalist sources or lodge defamation writs purely to stop the publication of stories and scare off the rest of the media. We're also increasingly seeing powerful agencies, be they policing or anti-corruption bodies, that seem inclined to use their powers on reporters in order to identify and charge our sources. This sends a chilling message to all whistleblowers, who are, of course, the real heroes of our profession. With surveillance technology increasing, it is harder than at any time before to contact a whistleblower over a phone or on a computer without leaving a trace. Luckily, the best form of investigative journalism is still the safest, meeting sources face-to-face -face over a beer or coffee. 
but faced with increasing de increasingly demanding digital deadlines and online updates that drive and are driven by a relentless 24-hour news, news cycle, it is harder now for journalists to get away from their screens and out of the office. The decline of print and the voracious appetite of digital platforms poses a huge risk to investigative journalism as we all know it. The number crunchers might say, what's the point of a media company allowing a couple of expensive hacks to spend weeks travelling and amassing information for a complex story that could disappear from the top of a website within hours, especially if it is deemed not sexy enough? What's the good of a free press without the will to back such stories? or the funds to spend on the hard yakka, expensive and legally risking, risky reporting that so often leads to the most important work we do as, in, as journalists. As the mainstream media and journalism struggles to prosper in this new digital environment, those with endless resources and the desire to keep things hidden get better at doing just that. And this should concern us all. I recently watched a Media Watch program on the ABC that seemed to be quite mirthful, that seemed to quite mirthfully bemoan the lack of quality of some of the lighter stories that appear online, on Fairfax, or on News Limited websites. The editors of the SMH or the Daily Telly don't start their day by saying, let's see how many times we can put the word porn into an online headline. The challenge to remain profitable, something the ABC does not have to worry about, is leading us all down an uncertain path, and good journalism may not be the winner. A story Richard and I are well known for, and what one of our night editors calls not that fucking security story again, <laughs> provides a case in point. We've written over 50 stories and done two Four Corners programs exposing this scandal, which has led to Australia's first ever foreign bribery prosecution and ensnared the Reserve Bank. The only day a story from this investigative series rated really well online is when we revealed that prostitutes had allegedly been used to bribe an overseas central banker. The ABC, and the SBS face their own challenges. They are not flush with cash, and their best programs are staffed with overworked and under-resourced journalists. And that is why any cuts to public broadcasting should be strongly opposed. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. So I'll, I'll jump back to it in a second. Yeah, I jumped the page for it, did I? No, no, no that's all right. So, okay, I suppose, uh, I guess, everyone would like to know uh, how Nick and I started uh, writing together. And, things like that. It was back in uh, 2008 and we were thrown together by our then boss, Gay Alcorn, to check out a commotion within the trauma and emergency department of Melbourne's Alfred Hospital. The nub of the story was that the head of the trauma department, Surgeon Thomas Cosman, was accused by his colleagues of inappropriate and excessive surgery with the aim of maximising his fees. This was a risky and difficult story. Cosman had a huge public profile in Melbourne. He'd been chosen by the state's health minister to be a key advisor he had powerful supporters in the Melbourne media and an international reputation. To make public these concerns would no doubt damage his reputation, rightly or wrongly. The age gave us a great luxury of time to investigate and we needed it. We split up the job of calling the surgeons, hospital administrators and nurses working in the Alfred's trauma ward. Many of the surgeons made detailed and strong allegations about Cosman's conduct, but they couldn't speak publicly because he was their boss and also because the hospital's rules didn't allow for unauthorised media appearances. As the weeks went by and the story built, Nick and I found that it was just more fun to work with someone on a big story than to dig on your own. As our trust with each other built, we shared contacts, shared phone numbers and divided the labour. And we argued our way through the writing process. This still happens. It should see us days out before a big story. It's, uh, it's not pretty. 
Two days before publication, our lawyer, Peter Bartlett, warned us, great story if you're right. If you're not, it will cost the age at least $1 million. So I told Nick, we'd better hit the phones again, because the figure, after all, is almost as much as Kerry O'Brien's salary. When the stories first hit, the expected blowback from Cosman and his supporters came. Cosman had engaged lawyers and a public relations firm. The age's main rival newspaper in Melbourne took a different view, as did Free AW's Neil Mitchell. So we kept going, but with a degree of caution. The Alfred Hospital reacted by standing Cosman down and uh, instigating a panel of free expert orthopaedic surgeons to review a number of his operations. Eventually, this panel found major flaws in some of the surgical decisions by Cosman. Subsequent parliamentary report by the Victorian Ombudsman made the strong finding that the patients had effectively been harvested in an effort to maximise surgical income, with the state-funded insurer billed huge amounts. Twice during the period that we were writing these Cosman stories, I had the misfortune to require the services of Melbourne's trauma wards for injuries gained on the football field. <laughs> when I was being wheeled into theatre to have a broken wrist screwed back together, the surgeon and his team were asking, are you the guy writing about Cosman? <laughs> As the anaesthetic took hold, I said, yes, is this a good or a bad thing? Months later, and the saga was still running, I had made a return to the football field only to get a solid bump and a pneumothorax, which is a pocket of air trapped in your lung. So back into the Alfred trauma ward I was once again. This time a young registrar on duty asked me as he jabbed the needle in between my ribs to remove the trapped air if I was the guy who did all those stories on the prof. When I said I was, he replied, I wouldn't be telling too many people around here that, and left. So that was the start of our journalistic partnership that's now into its sixth year. The Cosman experience brought home to us just how much better two heads are than one when it comes to tough, controversial stories. It was also the start of a firm friendship that exists outside the office. But more than anything, those stories made us acutely aware of the power that we have as journalists to impact on the lives of others. Cosman was a surgeon who no doubt did a lot of good and he saved many lives. But our stories cost him his job, hurt his reputation and made life very uncomfortable for his wife and children. But still, it was unquestionably in the public interest to know that surgical decisions at the city's main trauma department were found to have been made with financial gain being a motivating factor. With major media companies facing ongoing financial difficulties, the prospect of litigation is an ever-present fear for investigative journalists like ourselves and our employers. Let's be clear on this. We are not sooks. There is nothing worse than a journo with a glass jaw. We throw plenty of punches and have to expect people to fight back. A defamation writ, while never pleasant, is a hazard of our job. And people have every right to take legal action if they believe the reputation has been unfairly maligned by a media outlet. And you have to cop this criticism on the chin. Going through our archives recently, we found a few gems. A businessman running a large scale migration racket we helped expose recently responded to my questions to him with a text message that said, every dog has his day. Watch your ass, son. In fact, whenever I'm called son, the word dog often follows. <laughs> After our recent expose of corruption in the building industry and the CFMEU, Mick Gatto sent me a text that said, son, <laughs> don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. An underworld figure close to Mick then called me and told me, I was a dog <laughs> and asked if I knew what happened to dogs. Well, I certainly know what happens when you run over them, I thought to myself.
I've not always just been called, called any old dog. Kathy Jackson recently described me in an email as a conniving poodle. <laughs> Lawyers have their own ways of throwing jabs. When we first put questions about possible foreign bribery to the lawyer for the Reserve Bank Company Security, he wrote to our editor to warn we were going down a dangerous path and about to make some grave mistakes. The nature of the inquiries made by both Mr McKenzie and Mr Baker indicate that their understanding of the subject matter about which they intend to write is poor and incomplete. The next letter in the mail was from a lawyer acting, from one of the, acting for one of the overseas middlemen used by security to allegedly win corrupt deals by paying bribes and had been sent a, li a list of questions by both of us. His lawyer wrote to us, the distress upon getting these questions which have caused our client is likely to have contributed to the massive heart attack which he suffered yesterday. <laughs> We're then told the middleman had to be medically evacuated to another country some distance away and wanted Fairfax to pay for these costs. We refused and I can report this middleman today is in robust health, having eventually settled for a free six month Fairfax digital subscri subscription. <laughs> but the most serious missive we got from a lawyer was from one working for us. We'd been summoned to the Supreme Court as part of a motion advanced by one of the security bribery suspects, whose lawyers were arguing that someone in the government was leaking us information about the bribery investigation. We were ordered in court to reveal our sources. We refused, appealed, lost, appealed again, and were summoned back to court. The night before we were to appear in court at exactly 10.24 p.m., our lawyer, Veronica, from Interellison texted us with what she called in the text, and I quote, some friendly, loyally advice. I understand you'll refuse to answer questions tomorrow, she wrote. Her text went on, when you pack your change of clothes, do not include Nike sneakers. They're very popular amongst other prisoners. <laughs> I suggest an unpopular brand of shoes. Cheers and good night, Veronica. Occasionally, very occasionally, we do receive some pleasant correspondence. A few, a few years ago, a lady from the Sydney office of the law firm Baker and McKenzie sent us a kind email to congratulate us on a series of stories. The lady explained that part of her job at the firm was to collect all the press clippings mentioning Baker and McKenzie, and as such, she'd probably read more of our stories than anyone save our mums. <laughs> but back to business. What about when a person or an organisation with access to serious money uses the courts to stop genuine public interest reporting just because they don't like it? It's happened to us in 2010 when we were exposing how $45 million in taxpayer money was being used by Frank Lowy's Football Federation Australia to pay a couple of European shysters big bucks to court votes from the FIFA delegates for the 2022 World Cup. What a success that was. If it's true the stories did not come at a good time for Lowy and the FFA with the FIFA vote on the 2018 and 2022 World Cup hosts only months away. But there was, there was really nothing defamatory in what we'd written. We didn't think so. Nevertheless, a writ was lodged within the, in the Supreme Court in New South Wales, which stopped us in our tracks and warned the rest of the Australian and international media off the story. Cost Fairfax tens of thousands of dollars, maybe more, in legal fees to deal with this writ, which was nothing more than a stop writ. When the crucial period of time for the FFA had passed, the action was quickly and quietly resolved. This week, one of the nation's top journalists, Ted Lee Thomas, wrote in The Australian of Clive Palmer's appetite for suing his critics. This type of behaviour should be seen as an abuse of the courts, 
For media companies and journalists, such litigation is expensive and runs the risks of further shackling real investigative journalism. Why should the country's richest and most influential people be allowed to operate free of scrutiny? Using the courts to try and identify sources is the other legal action increasingly being used to undermine investigative journalism. This happened to us with the security story. It's also happened on another story we did on uh, Chinese businesswoman Helen Wu and her donations to uh, the Labor Party and her relationships with certain Labor politicians. Colleagues Adele Ferguson and Steve Pinnells have also faced such demands from Gina Reinhart. And one of our, our lawyer, Peter Bartley, is perhaps one of Australia's most experienced media lawyers, says he's dealt with around seven such source disclosure applications in the last 18 months and warns that it's a dangerous and growing trend. Both, both Richard and I, along with Cameron Stewart and Adam Shand of the Australian, Linton Besser and Dylan Welsh, formerly of the SMH, now with the ABC, and Darren Lunny, formerly of Channel 9, Paddy Murphy of the Herald Sun have been the subject of efforts by powerful agencies to try to find out who our sources are. And that's just the journos that I know of. In my 12 years of reporting, I've been the subject of such action from the Federal Police, from another federal agency I can't under law name, the Office of Police Integrity, the Victorian Ombudsman and the Victorian Police. My phones have been tapped by the AFP and I've been called to Star Chambers. I can't say under law what happened there. I can say I never revealed a source. Source protection laws around this country, and which still have some way to go, offer no protection in such situations. If we've got no legal backing, then how do we take on these agencies when they come hunting? Well, one way is to band together. Different media outlets are great in this country at knocking each other. It's critical that we join forces, not just in rhetoric that, that proclaims the public's right to know, but in our reporting and our lobbying on these press freedom questions. Now, more than ever, we need solidarity in the media. Richard and I now take a range of steps to protect our sources, and face-to-face -face contact remains the preferred method. Yet getting out and about is tougher for many journalists. And the, rea and the reality of long journalistic investigations is that they often struggle to find a place online because of the way news websites churn news to keep people clicking. Our challenge is to find a sustainable and captivating way to display great exposés on Australian mainstream news websites. One of my colleagues recently asked if we were perhaps flattering ourselves to think that the majority of the public have a craving for hardcore investigative journalism. As of 4pm yesterday, here were the most read stories of the day on a website of a major Australian paper. Number one, porn video filmed in university library. Number two, couple filmed porn on Melbourne, on Melbourne train. Number three, song master Michael Bublé better than ever. <laughs> to this last headline, all I can say is thank God Michael Bublé, Bublé hasn't made a sex tape. <laughs> Still, we believe passionately that there is an audience hungry for complex, deeply researched and well-written stories about the inner workings of Australians' life. It's a task of all of us, especially those in charge of major media outlets, to work out a way to deliver this type of journalism online. In the ultra-competitive and sometimes nasty world of Australia's media, we sometimes forget that most of us face the same challenges. The death of Fairfax or the closure of the Australian would be a tragedy for Australia's free and pluralistic excuse me, press. And we should think about that when we, we report with glee on our competitors' sliding figures.
But for all the stress, legal threats, challenges of the internet, general doom and gloom, practicing journalism is still the best job in the world. Nick and I, it is, it's the best job. Nick and I are privileged to get supported so well, and we, we do thank Fairfax for that. You guys really, you know, have our backs and we appreciate that. And we get left alone to follow our noses. And when stories don't turn out to be what we'd hoped, the repercussions, touch wood, are not too bad. For example, last year, the pair of us spent a month solid working on what we thought was going to be a major sporting corruption scandal. Day after day, we've combed through the records of correspondence which we'd obtained and which we believe revealed leading figures in a major Australian sport were in secret betting syndicates, using Asian exchanges and third parties to wager on events that they were competing in. It was a slam dunk story, one we believed would change things forever. The day before publication, and we were going to go to town on this, we learned that the story might not be what it seemed. Strong possibility had emerged that certain leading sporting figures, we believed to be involved in the scam, might in fact be victims of a form of identity theft by an associate. We decided caution was the best course. The story was never written. In the words of the notorious former London Sun editor, Kelvin McKenzie, it was a reverse ferret. And that was that. More than a month's work down the drain. Later that day, we had a few beers and reflected on what had happened. We agreed that we'd dodged a bullet. If we'd gone ahead with that story as planned, well, I don't think we'd be here tonight. The little tale encapsulates why we're all in this industry, though. We love the thrill of the chase. To make change, expose crooks, and for all the technology involved, journalism remains a beautifully human affair. Stories start and end with people, and here lies the joy of the job. Where else can you get invited into homes of strangers to hear tales that many have not even told their loved ones? Well, the job gives you a chance to help the little guy stand up for his or herself and right or wrong. And what other industry, save for the cops, can you travel home at night knowing that in a few short hours, some bastard's going to get what they deserve for being a bastard for so many years? Make no mistake, press freedom in Australia is under serious threat on many fronts, through the courts, through surveillance and sometimes from ourselves. The Australian media has a strong heart and it's up to all of us in this room to have the courage, the enterprise and the hunger to keep digging, keep pub publishing and keep broadcasting no matter what. So let's roll up our sleeves and have some fun. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.